welcome listeners to season two, episode 11 of Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Char. And I'm Kelly. And this week's horror film is a classic of the genre, The Shining from 1980. But first, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. So we created this drink to make sure you won't become a dull boy. Oh. Wink. Because all recording and no drinking makes Kelly a dull boy. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) This episode will contain discussions on domestic violence, gaslighting, and some references to COVID-19. So if any of those are things that you don't want to deal with right now, feel free to skip this episode. This episode will also not be a very good analysis of The Shining because we are not professional reviewers. So if that bothers you, also don't listen. <laughs> I like that we have to preface that for this specific episode. Uh, I have to do it for myself because talking about this movie like gives me anxiety. Because, because it is too much pressure. Yeah, it is one of those like classic movies where there's a million and a half reviews of this movie online. And ours will not be the most in-depth quality filmography reviewy ones. So mm. it'll be fun and alcoholic and queer and feminist. That's what we offer. That's what we always offer. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's our next promo. <laughs> we suck at reviewing The Shining. But we are drunk, feminist, and queer, so... <laughs> So you made this drink. I did make this drink, and I was actually inspired because you, my love, ordered a batch of Sons of Vancouver's, like, April Fool's alcohols. Yes. Which we've wanted since we went to their uh, establishment at the beginning of this entire it's like series. almost a year ago now. Hell yeah. Oh my god! I'm gonna cry! Or kill you. <sighs> I haven't decided yet. Just like Jack. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, one of the drink or one of the uh, alcohols is coffee liqueur sucks because it's uh, an April Fool's thing, which like looking at it, I was like, does it does this actually suck or are they just saying that other ones (laughs) suck? So they made a good one. Yeah. But I wanted to make a coffee drink because I'm like, he's a writer. Writers drink coffee, but it's cold because it's been sitting around for so long because he's kind of in the in the mindset of typing the same words over and over again. Yeah. Um. And then because we've been trapped inside, we don't have a lot of resources again. So I was like, what else do you put with coffee? I could put cream in it. That's getting dangerously close. It's just a white Russian. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even change anything. It's just all the standards ingredients of a white Russian. (laughs) Your ratios are what make this drink unique? I think. I don't know what a white Russian tastes like. (laughs) I've never made one before. But we're also including Mad Lab Distilling's premium vodka. Nice. Because I'm terrified to put cream in any other type of vodka unless it says premium on it. (laughs) Oh, man. And we have to do a shout out to both of these distilleries again because they are fighting the good fight against the COVID-19 in every order. Batch, delivery. Delivery that they make. Um, Mad Labs is giving out hand sanitizing wipes and Sons of Vancouver is giving out a little bottle of hand sanitizer, mm-hmm. which came in our uh, April Fool's one. Yeah. Wow, that was very Canadian. Arr. Our April. So if uh, if we run out <laughs> of liquor, we can drink the hand sanitizer. No. Again, I brought this up last episode. I'm not too sure. <laughs> do not do that. Um, what is this uh, white Russian called? I call it work and play. Ah. Because the coffee helps you work, but it's alcoholic. So it helps you play. Wink. <laughs> Jack Torrance is not supposed to drink it. 
Because he's been on the wagon. Ah, mm-hmm. for what, five months? Yeah, something like that. And it brought him so much pain. Yep, it's uh, it's done irreparable damage to himself. That's right. We're quoting the movie already. Ha! Ah. And you thought we would be bad at this. This is good, though. I'm glad I brought up that I wanted to try White Russian a while ago and that you remembered it because I forgot. There's a lot of cream in it. Yeah, but I... Th- think you're supposed to like the, the thing I found literally said like put this amount of vodka this amount of coffee liqueur and then just fill the rest with cream so I think it's one of those drinks where it's like up to you how strong you want it yeah and we're using heavy cream which is pretty dang creamy it literally said whole milk or heavy cream so toe to tip this is a white Russian <laughs> I don't know what to tell you it's a work and play <laughs> the uh the flavors of it come from our sponsors so use use our sponsors liquor or whatever you have lying around. Because it's the quarantine times. I've always been a fan of the idea of a brown Russian, which is literally just chocolate milk in place of cream. Because ah. I'm a child and the sugary, tasty chocolatiness of a of a brown Russian seems very intriguing. It just sounds sexual. But a brown I Russian. Do, yeah, I don't know why. It, it's giving me mental images of a dirty Sanchez. Which <laughs> makes me not want to drink it. I mean, if you dr- if you drank it, you would get a non-sexual Dirty Sanchez Ah, because of the mustache. The mustache of chocolate milk from brown cows. I mean, white Russian also. You could be like, hey, girl, you want some of my white Russian? Ew. Yeah. But no, this is good. It, it sips easy. It's a cold drink, which is not something you usually expect from things that are coffee flavored. I feel like I'm missing the a bit more of the coffee, though. I think that the ratio is I would add a bit more coffee liqueur. That's fair. And again, I feel like it's one of those things where white Russian is such a classic drink. I mean, work and play is such a classic <laughs> classic drink. Just mix it up however you want. Put whatever liquor that you want a uh, ratio different. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. It's also the end of the world. So no one's going to fucking d- judge you if you also just put like tequila or whiskey in it. Oof. Get rid of the cream. Just drink whiskey from the bottle and call it a white Russian whenever someone asks. <laughs> oh, man. So this week we watched The Shining, which premiered on May 23rd, 1980. It's based on the 1977 novel by Stephen King. It's written by a Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson and directed by Stanley Kubrick. And it stars Jack Nicholson as the father hotel caretaker, Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall as the wife and mother, Wendy Torrance, and Danny Lloyd as their son, Danny. Danny. Whoa. Or Doc. You know what this drink actually is making me think of real quick? What? Um, at Tuck, I get the coffee and cigarettes. Yes. That's what I thought you were going to do when you said you were using but the coffee. We don't liquor. have the cigarette. Smoke thing? Yeah. Smoke bitters? I don't know what's There's in like it. a smoky bitters that just makes it taste like cigarettes. And like, I don't smoke, but I fucking just want some some of that sweet menthol flavor. <laughs> menthol? What am I, my grandmother? Oof. That sweet tar flavor. <laughs> Delicious. Anyways, continue. <laughs> well, the next part, I'm staring at the screen where we keep our notes because I... <laughs> Pulling back the curtain, I make these little documents that have our like points and our step by step of where we're going with the flow of the podcast. And I'm staring at this document that just says synopsis, all caps. Write synopsis here. Do you want me to freeform it? You yeah, to, you do. Yeah, I do. Do you want me to scat just like Mr. Scatman? Scatman, scat the synopsis What's for it, me. What was his name? Scatman something. Anyways, <laughs> give me a sec. I was going to do the thing where it's like Jack Torrance was a loving father, but uh, a failing writer, Jack Torrance, 
gets a job at the Overlook Hotel to take care of it over the winter, which is when it notoriously falls apart. He takes his son, Danny, and his wife, Wendy, to go with him for six months? I don't a long time. Yeah, several months. But he has been warned ahead of time that previous caretakers have gone mad and killed their family. And he says it's fine. <laughs> so they get up there. Uh, everybody leaves. And they're left alone. Now, Danny has this strange power called The Shining that he was told by Mr. Scatman, whose character's name I can't remember right now. Do you he's, remember? He's the chef. Yeah, he's the chef. Anyways, Danny has been told about this power called The Shining, and it gives him premonitions and sees ghosts in the Overlook. So several months go by. Everything seems fine, but think creepy things start showing up in the hotel. Danny Ooh. sees uh, the vision of two dead twins, Jack, He's starting to lose it because he sucks at writing and can't keep his focus. Also, he's yelling at Wendy, who's just trying to keep everything together and also yeah. is actually doing the job of caretaking. Fuck you, Jack. Eventually, Danny makes his way into room 237, which <laughs> he was told to avoid. And he returns with choke marks around his neck, which Wendy equates to Jack assaulting their son which again. It, yeah, wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this makes Jack lose it. And he goes into the ballroom to get a drink from the spiritual entities that are, have been serving him drinks. Which are like 1920s themed. Yes. He's then met by the old caretaker of the Overlook, who more or less tells Jack to kill his family. Because it's his responsibility. Yes. Also, he goes into room uh, 237, where he starts making out with a naked ghost, who then turns into a rotting corpse naked ghost. Very, very ugly. Yeah. So everything's just going off the rails. Uh, he confronts Wendy after she finds his manuscripts that just say, all work and no play make Jack a dull boy. Over and over and over. Over and over again. In 400 pages, I think somebody analyzed it. Uh, he then confronts Wendy, who starts swinging a bat at him. She escapes, tries to uh, rescue Danny. All hell breaks loose when Jack gets an axe and starts breaking down the door in the famous scene. Here's Johnny. She, he gets stabbed in the hand. Danny gets away. Snow is everywhere. Snow is everywhere. No phone lines, no radio. He's like isolated them in this cabin. Scatman comes back because he premonized all this happening. Immediately gets killed upon stepping through the threshold. Axe through the heart. Jack continues to chase his family down. Danny leads him into the maze. He get, Jack gets lost. Danny gets away. And him and his mom drive away after Wendy saw a bunch of scary premonitions in the hotel. Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff. It's a very event-driven movie. You gotta watch it. <laughs> Anyways, that's my best um, improvised analysis. And then we get slow zoom in on a group of people in the hotel with Jack Nicholson right at the front smiling, and they're all in 1920s getup. And then we get slow zoom in. Oh, that's definitely Jack Nicholson with some people around him. Slow zoom in. Oh, look, just in <laughs> case you didn't know, that's Jack Nicholson. Slow pan to the bottom where it says... Hotel party. 1921? Something I think like so. that. Just in case you didn't get it. There's a bit from a show that I can't remember now where it does that and then it pans down and it's like uh, old timey photo class 2006 or something like that. <laughs> I didn't write it in my fun facts, but uh, that photo is actually a picture. It's actually a photo from 1920 and they airbrush Jack Nicholson's face onto the front guy rather than just getting extras to take a picture. <laughs> when they had all the extras there. Yeah. Dressed That's funny. <laughs> huh. So like when you look around for like, ooh, maybe I recognize some of the extras. You don't because it's an old ass picture. 
<laughs> Hit me with that trailer audio. But I must say, that was a very good on-the-fly synopsis. Thank you. During the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. <laughs> some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. Here's Johnny! I love the like close up quick shots of the of Danny's face with his big open mouth. Uh, I imitated it for those of you listening yeah. to this audio medium. I could see it. <laughs> yeah, it had a lot of the uh, the Kubrick stare, which is the like head slightly tilted down looking up at the camera look. It's very prominent in quite literally every Kubrick movie. Ah, I'm really disappointed in you. You picked the wrong trailer. I did? Yeah. You didn't pick the one where someone re-edited the movie to make it look like it was a family comedy. Ah. Yeah. I think in like 2007 or something. I have picked the wrong trailer before. <laughs> so I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. Someone edited it together to make it look just like a fun vacation comedy. And, uh, and I really liked that one. So go check that one out. <laughs> it was a good trailer though. It gave a good feel. Yeah, it was very good. It didn't have a lot of the iconic scenes in it, though, which is weird. Like, well, uh, they gotta they gotta leave some things to the not to the imagination, but to the actual film when you watch it. Mm-hmm. Got to keep that impact high. I have another fact that I think actually is in my facts later, but it's more relevant to the conversation right now. Go for it. Uh, you know the blood scene where it's coming out of the elevator. Yep. Apparently, uh, when this movie was released, you're not allowed to show blood in trailers. So Kubrick actually convinced the board that it was rusty water with some dye in it because the elevators are red and they put it in the trailer. So that scene is actually in the original trailer for the movie, even though you're not supposed to show blood. Oh, shit. Hell yeah. Fuck the man. People do that a lot in film. They try to get around the rules, which is interesting because it's their rules. But not. I feel like it's the um, especially in America. It's like what's the FDA? Is it FDA? Sure. It's the like family values. Oh, the Hayes Code. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those are just based on the idea that like everyone in America is a fucking prude. Yeah. Married couples sleep in separate beds. Hell yeah. Have to show that if they ever enter their bedroom, there are two beds. They have children. (laughs) Nobody knows how kids are made. It's a mystery. (laughs) But yeah, I was reading something and it's like in other countries, like nudity is allowed for advertisement. Like England can show penai as long as they're not erect. It's just like inherently America's like censorship laws make the thing more sexual than it was actually intended to be. Yeah. Like a woman naked isn't inherently sexual. But when you sense when you try to censor it, you're then implying that it's sexual. Yeah. Especially when you're trying to protect kids from sex. Which we must say now, there are boobs in this movie. A few of them. Yes. Two. More than just two boobs. <laughs> two sets of real ones <laughs> and two sets of painted ones. <laughs> so we did shout boobs at some point. You have some thoughts. I do. So and before we even started recording, you said, I don't really want to do a lot of thoughts because this is going to be overly analyzed already and we're not going to be able to do it. Yes. And I thought about it and I came up with solutions. So I actually only have two points that I want to talk about myself. Nice. But there's a lot of facts that I think could potentially lead into like conversations. I'm especially Ah. interested to like get your point of view on things as well. 
Cause like I, in school I took like, it was, what was it? It was specifically called like storytelling for video games, but our teacher was like a huge film fanatic. So like it was mostly just a film analysis class. And then he's like, <laughs> here's how you would adjust it for a video game. So like all of the, we were made to like watch shining analysis and stuff like that. And I don't want to just like mimic what I learned in school. Cause like go watch a 10 minute long shining review and you'll get all the things that I would say. Uh, so I just want to talk about the things that are like unique to what I was thinking about and stuff like that. Yeah. One notable one, which is my first thought, uh, is that at one point in the beginning of the movie, the owner of the hotel says that this hotel was built on an Indian burial ground and that they had to fight off a lot of the natives to get it built. Wait, I missed that second part. Oh, yeah. Like when the owner is leading Jack around the grounds, he's like, yeah, it said that this is built on an uh, Indian burial ground. And we already even, my brain, I was like, oh, well, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. And we had to kill a lot of the people that tried to keep us from building it here. Oh, my gosh. A- and I'm like, well, no shit, your hotel is haunted. You like n- not only did you bury it or you build it on somewhere that like is sacred, is sacred, but you fucking murdered people in cold blood on the land. Man, what the fuck? So like, I'm glad you brought that up. This is like ultimate colonizer hotel, I guess. Because yeah, and he even states at one point he's like, winter sports weren't even that popular when this thing was built. So you just wanted a fancy ass hotel on top of some like that indigenous land, very secluded, you know. Mm. So uh, right off the bat, fuck the hotel. Uh, it deserved to burn down in the book. Unfortunately, it's it burns a- down in the book. Yeah. Don't you remember the Friends episode where Rachel's reading The Shining and Joey ruins it for him? Well, he talks about the woman in the bathtub. He does. And then he says at the end when Jack tries to kill the family with an or blank tries to kill the family with an axe and then the boiler explodes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a huge there's tons of differences between the book and the movie, which I talk a little bit about in the in the in the facts but uh yeah i just thought that was interesting and i don't even remember that part from watching the movie before but like yeah fuck whoever made this building everybody who works there deserves to die well they kind of did didn't they (laughs) turns out they got their comeuppance and now they're trapped in the hotel forever that's such an awful thing too like the manager is proud of that story and it's I mean, like it's a like, new employee and he's like boasting about it. Fucking killed so many people trying to defend their land. Fuck you. I mean, it was the 80s and like they're rich. So and they're like, yeah, this is a bloody ass hotel. Makes me mad. This is our blood hotel. And my second thought, it's actually interesting because so there's a theory that The Shining is viewable both forward and backward. And if you overlay them, there are extremely significant visual metaphors that line up perfectly. Mm-hmm. Which I got in my head at some point that it was real and that Kubrick intended this to be the case. But then I looked it up and apparently it's a bullshit theory that fans have come up with. That's not true at all. No, it's the equivalent of if you play Dark Side of the Moon and watch Wizard of Oz at the same time, everything lines up. Yep. And uh, I realized that that learning that thing ruined me for watching artsy horror movies for the last like 10 years, because even when we watched Us... It was done in such a way, especially with the metaphors of like the mirroring people that I was specifically analyzing that movie with the idea that maybe he had like emulated Kubrick's style of making a mirrored movie. Yeah. Which I now know is bullshit. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. Oh, man. That's such an interesting because I've heard that, too. Not just from you. Like it's a well popularized falsity or falsehood. I just made up a word. Falsity. Yeah. And it's like 
of course, some things are going to line up like humans are designed to recognize patterns and like symmetry. Yeah. Exactly. It's like the same thing of like if like when I'm editing videos and stuff, I'll just throw a random song to help me get in the mood into the timeline and I'll play it and like things will line up and I'll be like, oh, my God, it was perfect. It, it was, was meant, meant to, be. to be. Yeah, it's bullshit. <laughs> humans are designed to find things like that. And Coincidence. yeah, and I'm now kind of upset because I'm like wondering how many movies I've watched with that idea. Oh, well, maybe it's a real thing in something else. I mean, I could imagine like a modern day director either thinking that that is a real thing or wanting to do that as yeah. like a homage to the 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 theory itself. Um, I mean, I probably would have, if I made it to a point in my life where I was directing a movie and I never learned this fact, I'd be like, let's do it like Kubrick. Yeah. Back and forth. <laughs> 80 takes per scene. Oof. Oh, I got some, I got some facts that we can talk about. Great. But that basically, those are like the two main things I wanted to talk about that weren't related to a fact. Yeah. I had a lot of, like, I, I was talking while we were watching the movie sometimes and I was like pointing out cool things, but yeah. for the most part, like I cover them in the facts a bit. Also, again, I don't want to like I don't want to spend the entire episode trying to analyze it when you could just watch a, a you could watch something on YouTube that is designed to analyze it properly. Yeah. And I would rather you and I have a conversation about the movie. Wink. I have some thoughts. Um, I, too, went to film school. Well, not film school. I took film courses, but they were more like monsters in media, I think was the title. So we did not watch The Shining. Uh, Which is interesting because I would consider Jack a monster in media or was it like literally like ghouls and goblins in media? Mostly, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, but we also covered like Maniac and uh, Blue Velvet. Like there are some human monsters in there too, but Okay, not The Shining. Maybe we saw like the typical here's Johnny scene. I don't know. I don't remember. But I remember you showing me this film when we were back in our early days. <laughs> oh, um, when I was trying to impress you with my knowledge of film. And you did impress me. <laughs> and now we do this podcast. Yeah, You're welcome. Nailed it. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, there are things that stick out to me. Uh, one of them is, of course, the music. It's really iconic like that. I can't. Let, let's just play a clip of it. to try to do the dead by daylight thing well that's why i stopped singing it because it was dun, gonna morph into dun, that dun, 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 <laughs> dun, dun, but it does such a good job of it plays its role very well of making this consistent layer of dread be present throughout the film and it completely changes like the opening scene which could basically it could be any scene yeah. it's like a happy you play like chipper music on there and it's like a romantic comedy about to start <laughs> but uh not with the music that they got where it's like a slow pan of a car driving through the rockies which is very beautiful but uh yeah it's very foreboding which is just like the hotel is so nice and yet so sinister yeah you can like play a beautiful looking shot in even in the hotel and play like the really like momentum building horror music in the background and you're like oh fuck Things are going to go down soon. Yep. Um, it's actually, it's kind of funny because uh, this is a uh, tangent. I wanna, yeah. I want to say it's a middle, middle school or high school. Uh, the trailer for the original Gears of War came out. Okay. Um, and it's like this 
bloody street battle of like Marcus running down, shooting aliens and shit, jumping into a building. But they play Mad World in the background. Oh, yeah. They're like all around me are from. And it's like this. It turns it into like this hauntingly beautiful fight of this like man trying as desperate as he can. Is it like slow-mo? No, it's played straight. Oh. And, and it, but it, it like it makes it feel like you're Marcus and you feel desperate and stuff like that. And for a project in high school, I analyzed that and I replaced the music with like System of a Down or like some heavy metal or something like that. And I played that originally and I told the class um I mean most of my classmates had seen the trailer but I told like my class and my teacher I'm going to play this trailer uh for a video game and then I'm going to talk about it and I played my version with like the heavy metal and stuff and the teacher was like confused and I was like that was a fake one let me play the real one and then I played the real one and then I talked about how each trailer made you feel look at look at young Kelly go That's cool. Anyways, that's my music story. That Yes, very illustrated my point for me. Thank you very music much. Music and moods. Who'd have thunk? Whew. Something else that popped up to me while we were watching a lot was how much this family sucks. <laughs> Question mark. And I kept saying it over and over and you kept, you'd give me this, the very typical Kelly look of like, it's mm. very Kubrick of you actually. It's like head down, <laughs> eyes smiling, you're like very all knowing. I wonder why they suck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, like from the beginning, when Wendy is explaining to the doctor how Danny's arm was dislocated in the beginning of the film, she gives like every excuse for Jack. She's telling the story with such a smile on her face. You know, you you always pull children in the street a hundred times and then suddenly something happens. It was totally an accident. Yeah, fucking right. <laughs> he's done such a good job of gaslighting her to believe that he's this perfect little saint. And it's so sad later in the film to watch how the hotel has affected him and how he treats her when he's but, like screaming at her. Yeah. And like yeah. get the fuck out and whatever. But you know that you can just assume that that's exactly how he had been treating her and Danny before they moved to the new house. Oh yeah. At the start of the film when he like gave up drinking and whatever. And he's not even drinking alcohol in the film because there is no alcohol on site. We mm-hmm. see him drink, but it's like fake in drink. his brain Mind or whatever. drink. And it's just, she does such a good job, though, of playing a woman that has survived years of abuse. Mm -hmm. Because like the moment you see her and she's talking to the doctor, like you're like, oh, I see what's going on. Jack's an asshole. And she has to put up with it. Yeah. Um, She is very like protective of Danny. She yeah, she does a very good job. She's a amazing mother protecting her son. And she does. What's the word? She does stand up to Jack. Yeah. Like, especially when he's at his peak of uh, insanity and is going is on his murderous warpath. She fights him physically and mentally like she's swinging her bat, which was kind of lame to see the like lack of effort. But I think it was supposed to show how terrified she was and she doesn't want to fight her husband. But it just there's something so pitiful. It's like the she's like broken basically at that point. Like she's hit the end. Yeah. And it's like, well, I need to defend. Even when they get back to like their room, she's like, OK, well, I'm going to take Danny with us and he can come if he wants. But uh, I mean, she's t- like talking herself up. And yeah. 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 It's really interesting because like in the book, she's more of a strong character. She's I think uh, King wrote her as like an ex cheerleader who like fell in love with this guy and then like shit went downhill. But she's like stronger. But in the movie, she's definitely like uh, she's so mousy. She's a doormat. Yeah, she's been broken and she's persevering, which is great. And like 
that is a very admirable trait for her to have. She doesn't play the victim, no. but you can tell that she's been, uh, she's a battered woman. And she, even in the way she's like, she runs, you were pointing out, she does the like oh arm God. flaily thing of like yeah. running and like dangling the knife and stuff like that, which either comes from just how scared she was or the fact that they probably filmed her running upstairs 75 times and she was just goddamn tired. Which is probably what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I just, another fact, I didn't write this one down either, but she, to do that scene, she ran up the equivalent of the Empire State Building. Wow. Because Kubrick is well known for doing multiple takes. Oof. Which I have, again, more Kubrick facts. <laughs> and then the last thing that I want to talk about is kind of like the iconic moments in this film that are so prevalent in pop culture. So there's the Room 237 scene, which is incredibly creepy yeah this we watched this last night and it was the second time for me of watching this film i know what's happening i know it's gonna come but it's still the body horror of seeing what jack is like caressing and like pressing up against himself after it's revealed is so i don't have a word for it it's so gross you're like literally making out with a like corpse a bloated like a waterlogged corpse I can't talk about it anymore. I'm going to vomit. <laughs> but it's interesting. Did he though? No. Yeah. Like the she's not actually there, but in his mind, he made out with a waterlogged corpse. Yeah. It's yeah. still though. Just the idea of it. And then the blood coming from the elevator scene is super cool. And that's been used a lot. The, uh, the twins is extremely iconic. Yep. I had two coworkers, uh, dress up as them for Halloween one year. Oh yeah. I think I was at that Halloween party. Yeah. Um, the, uh, you didn't watch The Simpsons that much growing up, did you? No. They uh, Every Halloween, they would do Treehouse of Horror, which is basically three mini stories of the characters doing things. It was like all non-canon, uh, but one of them was literally... Like spoofs, though? Yeah. Yeah. One of them was literally The Shining, and I mean, it's iconic because they just took all the iconic scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And redid them in The Simpsons style. I think at the end, the entire family dies, and they're all sitting frozen watching... A small TV or something like that. <laughs> and then the last thing I wanted, just a little tidbit, is that since we've been doing a lot of uh, Zoom calls with my family now, this has like the shining has kind of entered our lives mm. of um, changing the background <laughs> of us. We use the shining hallway, which is funny. And then my dad didn't get it, though. He was the one person I was counting on to be like, of course, that's the shining hotel hallway. Yeah, I'm surprised because not only did the shining come out during probably his formative years, but also he watches a lot of movies. Yeah. How did how do you miss The Shining in this day and age? Come on, Mike. I can imagine kids being born now wouldn't see The Shining unless they saw Dr. Sleep and they're like, oh, man, I want to watch this movie that it's based on. Yeah. But yeah, like The Shining should be unmissable at your dad's age. I do not forgive him. I will call my mom up right now and see if she's watched The Shining. She probably has. Probably. Do you want to call her? I, do you want that? I, I can do that bit. Here, one sec. One sec. Hello? Hello. Hello. I had a question for you. Okay, shoot. Have you ever seen The Shining? Yes. When did you see The Shining? Uh, I might have seen it a couple of times. Did you watch it like when it came out or around that time? What year did it come out? 1980. 1980. 1980. I would have been 12. So maybe not. Hmm. Because we're trying to figure out uh, Char's dad never 
doesn't even know about it or like he knows about it. He's never seen it before. And really? I was saying that he's like older than you. So I was saying that he was of an age that it's almost unforgivable that he didn't watch that movie. Yeah. Have you ever seen The Shining, Gary? You've never seen The Shining? <laughs> Maybe it's a guy thing then. He's what? Oh, he hates horror. That's why. Yeah. He says it's a horror show. So that's why. <laughs> it's with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> um, so I don't think I watched it. Have you guys watched it yet? Uh, we're recording the podcast right now on it. So you're on the podcast. On the Surprise. Podcast? I mean, we'll see how good the audio is, but. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, his wife always reminded me of Popeye's girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Olive oil. <laughs> I could see that. So anyways, um, I did not watch it when it first came out because I would have been, like I said, 12. And I think the main reason why I didn't at that time was because the creepy twins. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I can see that. Yeah. I, I imagine I was, I was one half of a cre- creepy twin set. So. <laughs> True. I imagine Nana and Papa also wouldn't have wanted you to see like all of the gore and stuff. Um, I think it was more the haunting thing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, mind you, one of the first movies that my mom took my brother to go see in the theaters was Carrie. <laughs> Good. But no, I did not watch it when it first came out, but I have seen it a couple of times. Jack Nicholson is one of my favorite actors, so. Good. Well, that's yeah. all I really wanted to know. <laughs> Okie dokie. Thanks, okay. Mom. Love, Bye. love. Bye. 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 Yay. I hope that works out. But if not, this will never make it into the podcast. Yeah, my, I, I called my mom. She definitely has watched The Shining. But my stepdad hasn't. But that's because he was um, raised Jehovah's Witness. And I think any idea of like hauntings is is bad. Don't do that. At one point, he told me he doesn't want to introduce that into his house by watching like ghost movies. Because that's how that works. Which I can totally relate to. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> but your dad loves movies, so he's got no excuse. Gary's yeah. got an excuse. <laughs> God would be mad. <laughs> We're going to take a moment to talk about our socials and sponsors. This episode of Drinking and Screaming is brought to you by Sons of Vancouver Distilling. They just released their April Fool's lineup. Every year they make a new, funny, limited edition concoction. And this year I bought us the whole series. Beep, beep, beep. Woo! They also sent us a bottle of their hand sanitizer because they're fighting the good fight against the coronavirus. Wink. But we use the coffee liqueur sucks in our cocktail. Do you want to read it or do you want me to read it? Uh, Read the back because it's funny and it's also close to you so you can read it. (laughs) Our master distiller has carefully curated a truly unique spirit for the ages. Distilled and filtered as many times as humanly possible. It's a blend of exceptional North End coffee and artisanal tap water. Enjoy with the pastry and raised pinky. Or don't. (laughs) <laughs> and we also had Mad Lad Stillings premium vodka, which they actually won the Canadian Artisan Spirit Competition in 2019. Ooh. This spirit got the gold award and it's handcrafted in Vancouver, B.C. It's an unbelievably smooth, velvety soft texture and light toasty malt notes vodka. Batch distilled with a direct fire pot still, we're able to retain subtle flavors while separating out many of the harsher elements often associated with vodka. Nice. And I just mix those two and put some heavy cream in it. (laughs) Yeah, it does say on the back, you should best enjoy neat or on the rocks because it's a premium vodka. (laughs) We're like, nah. should best enjoy my ass. (laughs) 
Also, speaking of hand sanitizer, which uh, Sons of Vancouver sent us, wash your hands, you dinkuses. Wash them. <laughs> we are in a quarantine, so don't go outside unless you really have to. Stay home. Protect other people. Even if you think you're not high risk, you might be a carrier, and you might get some sweet little old lady sick on the street, and then she goes home and kills an entire group of old people in their commune of old people. You know, those old people <laughs> call communes. Which is why you should wear masks now. It's not to protect yourself from other people. It's so that you can protect other people. Yeah. Shar and I now have a couple masks that we wear whenever we have to go outside. And you should too. We can get through this together, but you have to be smart and work with us. Work on our terms. (laughs) And what does that mean? Stay the fuck home. Stay home. Listen to our podcast, you know. If you play video games, both RE3 Remake and Final Fantasy VII Remake just came out. So you have at least three days worth of full video gaming to do. Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing has taken over our entire lives. Watch some Stanley Kubrick movies. You can follow us on Instagram at Twitter at drink underscore scream on Facebook at drink and scream. You can email us at drinking and screaming at gmail.com. We have a discord bit.ly slash hopped up discord you can join the conversation with us it's hump it's a i was gonna say humping and bumping thumping and bumping in there we are not humping we are not allowed to touch six feet apart and obviously it would be a huge help to us if you could tell your friends tell your family share our podcast with the world we actually have a huge episode coming up i won't give too much details here you'll probably hear about it next episode but uh it's big it's huge. You're going to not want to miss it. (laughs) (laughs) Back to the episode. It's time for Scaredy Facts. So, for those of you who don't know, our Scaredy Facts section is emulated on Char and I's relationship, where every time we watch a horror movie, we will cuddle up in bed Turn to IMDb and look up the trivia section, both as an informative, fun activity as a couple, and also because we're scared and we want to become less scared by turning it into a movie and not a real event that happened. Ooh, spooky! Char usually falls asleep to trivia facts in, so... Hey. It's for me. (laughs) Oh, I did them. (laughs) Did you change the budget and stuff? Because I did not. Okay. So, right off the bat, let's get this out of the way. The budget of The Shining was $19 million estimated, which totally makes sense because it took like a year to make this fucking thing. A year? Yeah. It was supposed to take like six months, but they went way over time. And there are some really, like the blood elevator scene alone is like, I imagine, very expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got some facts as to why this movie was so expensive. Uh, the opening weekend in the States was only $622,000, and that was May 26, 1980, uh, and the cumulative worldwide gross now is $46.2 million, so it's pretty good. I feel like for a classic, that's pretty low, actually. That's, I'm, yeah. I got that from IMDb, and it feels weird, but I trust IMDb, so yeah, I take think- it with a grain of salt. But yeah, that's surprising. I'm pretty sure IMDb pulls their data from a separate database, which is updated regularly. So yeah. I would trust that, I guess. But yeah, that seems low for a classic. Um, all right. Now to an actual fact. Yes. So like I said, um, if any of these facts spark like a conversation, that's cool. I want that. So... Mm-hmm. Danny Lloyd, who plays uh, Danny, was so young, and since it was his first acting job, Kubrick was highly protective of the child, 
And I think we brought up a fact similar to this for another movie recently that had a kid in it. Uh, uh, the Babadook. Yes, The Babadook, which we did live. Live so at people. Fan Expo. But, uh, you know, it's a sign of a good director when you don't abuse the child that works with you. Um, so during the shooting of the movie, Lloyd was actually under the impression that the film he was making was a drama and not a horror movie. In fact, when uh, Wendy is actually carrying Danny away from Jack, she's actually carrying a doll. She's not even carrying. Oh, when um, she's like, you did this to him. Yeah. That moment. Oh, no. When. Um, yes. From that, that moment. Basically, anytime that she's carrying Danny and it's scary, it's a doll. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's so that he wouldn't see any of the scenes. And he didn't actually realize what the movie was until several years later when he was actually shown a heavily edited version of the movie and he got an idea that it was a horror movie and then he didn't see the uncut version until he was 17 wow uh 11 years after he had made this movie i mean that makes kind of sense i think i would have seen it earlier yeah wow huh it's interesting a movie because like you don't want to scar a child they're still a child even though they're an actor and they should be able to say, hey, it's my friend Jack Nicholson. And he's so quirky and he's such a good actor. But then like also he's a child. So he'll see like Scatman getting hit in the chest with an axe. And then also like a naked rotting woman in a bath and be like, well, now I'm fucked up for life. Yep. That's how you make a child actor. <laughs> you know, those infamous child actors. Always fucked up. Uh, so I thought that was kind of sweet, even up to the point where like I think Kubrick like called Danny once in a while just to see how he was doing. Uh, and he even, or no, he wrote him letters and then he actually called to congratulate Danny for graduating from high school. Hey. Which is very sweet. Uh, and Danny Lloyd actually grew up to be a professor of biology at a community college in uh, Elizabethton, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Yeah. So he got out of that grind of acting and became a professor. <laughs> which is pretty cool. I like that. I like watching old enough movies that we can see where the kid grew up to be. I wonder how, if any, residual checks he's getting. From the 46 million? Probably not a lot. I wonder what contract you sign as a child actor. Yeah, it depends. It's just like any regular real actor. Because, <laughs> like, does the agent, you would probably know this, does an agent work directly with the child or do they work with the parents and then the parents make deals and stuff? Yeah, it'll be the parents. Okay, so. Until they're 18. Yeah. So but it the money to- would go, it's not for the parents. It would be in a separate fund. For the child? Yeah. So they still get the money. Yeah. That's interesting. Because, yeah, like it would basically come down to, I imagine there's a lot of parents that are so desperate to get their child into a movie that they take shitty deals. I don't think. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about this scenario, but it could go anyway. Yeah. I mean, getting treated well by Kubrick is a. Was he well known at the point of this film? Danny? No. Kubrick? Yeah. Yeah. He'd made a Clockwork Orange previous. Oh. uh, Which was another cult classic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know how well received Clockwork Orange was when it first came out, but it's based on another book as well. Stephen King? I don't know. I don't think so. I think this might have been the first movie that he had made that's based on a Stephen King novel. Okay. This is actually, I think, the second Stephen King novel turned into a movie. I think the first might have been it. Yet. No, it's, the first one was Carrie. Come on, that oh, was yeah. in my scaredy facts. Oh, that's right, too, because <laughs> I also don't have a fact, but um, the way that Danny covers his eyes when he sees the twins and then looks through them is mimicking the way that Carrie looks through her, nice. eye, her fingers yep. when she's covered in blood. Yep. Um, so Jack Nicholson and uh, Shelley Duvall, who plays Wendy, have expressed 
open resentment against the reception of this film, feeling that the critics and audiences credited Stanley Kubrick solely to the film's success without considering the effects of the actors, crew, or the strength of Stephen King's underlying material. Nicholson and Duvall have said that the film was one of the hardest of their careers. In fact, Nicholson considers Duvall's performance the most difficult role he's ever seen an actress take on. Duvall also considered considers her performance the hardest in her life. I don't know why they would say that. Who? Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. That they, I don't see this movie and be like, wow, Stanley Kubrick. I think when I think of The Shining, I think Jack Nicholson immediately. Now, but I feel like up their own ass film reviewers are like, oh, Kubrick's such an auteur. Oh, my God. Oh, a beautiful piece of work made by Kubrick. It's unbelievable. Jack who? I don't know. Kubrick just made this thing. Oh, uh, I see. Well, I appreciate you, Jack and Shelley. I'm sure I'm sure they they feel it. <laughs> it is interesting, though, because we're seeing seeing that thing with uh, Candyman. Oh, my God. Don't even get me started about that. But yeah, it's the idea that like Jordan Peele directed us and get out so now Candyman, just because he's an ep or something or he's producing it yeah he's an executive producer the actual director is not even being con- like when they advertise Candyman coming up they're like oh my god it's jordan peele's candy man but it's not see you can't even f- you're, you've been googling who's actually making it and you can't find it i went to twitter first it was a mistake <laughs> oh god just type in Candyman 2020 nia da costa yeah, so she's actually directing the movie, but because Jordan Peele is already a big name, it's he's being labeled as like, it's Jordan Peele's Candyman. She even co-wrote it. Yeah, so. What the hell? So I can see the like resentment coming from, I, a film is, it's it's everybody. A film can only be done through a giant collective of people. Like the yeah. director has a, a unified vision of what the movie would look like and ultimately makes the final decision. But like- Everyone's involved in making it. Yeah. Well, a director is like the captain of a ship. Yeah. Like the ship's voyage, it depends on him, but, or um, her, a uh, them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can't, you can't disregard what the actors are doing. Exactly. I mean, nobody dies if a director fails and a movie sucks. People generally die if a ship's captain gets drunk and the ship you know crashes. What I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a, uh, a good point, especially when they seem to have such like respect for each other and they have efforts that they put into their performances Yeah, to then be like told that they didn't make the movie what it is. It was all Kubrick. Yeah. Don't brush people under the rug. So the, my next fact is a fun one because it also plays into our past or my <gasps> past. So The Shining was eventually readapted as a 1997 miniseries that followed Stephen King's book more closely. Because Stephen King hates this movie. Yes. He thinks it is a bad representation of his book. Which is funny because it's kind of the most popular. Mm-hmm. So Kubrick owned the rights to the 1980 ad- adaptation, the the movie. Yep. So in order for King to get the rights to readapt his own book into a miniseries, Kubrick required that he sign a legally binding contract that forced King to no longer be able to bring up frequent public criticism of the movie save for the sole commentary that he was disappointed with Jack Nicholson's portrayal of Jack Torrance. 
as though he had been insane before his arrival of Overlook. Like Stephen King doesn't like the idea that Jack kind of looks unhinged before getting to. I didn't think he did. I mean, he beat his son. And then while they were driving up to the Overlook, he kind of like brushes them. They didn't bring any food. Oh, yeah. That's just dumb parenting. If you're going to go on a three hour trip with a four year old, bring snacks. But I think like King originally wanted them to be like a sweet, happy family until. That's fair. But, but the idea, he, he just said, like, you should have ate your breakfast. I had been told that as a kid. Yeah, I think he looked unwell. I mean, Jack Nicholson has that scary face. Yeah, he just looks unwell all the time. Um, Sorry, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great actor. He's got the money. He can, <laughs> he can wipe his tears away with a hundred dollar bill. But the reason that I bring up the miniseries uh, specifically is because mm-hmm. the podcast we used to do, Good Enough to Air, we did uh, an episode on the mini. I think we did two episodes on the miniseries. That miniseries is awful. That is <laughs> such shit. It well, is like every time that King gets his hands on a movie adaptation of his own work, it is horrible. And like, I don't understand why he keeps doing it. Like, I understand. I understand. <laughs> I understand Such a funny line. <laughs> like I understand the idea that you have a specific vision yourself while writing the book, but you're a writer. You are not a film director, my dude. Like stay in your own goddamn lane. But then what if you made something and then people wanted to adapt it into something else and then you saw what they were doing and it was awful. If they I don't care. I'm a writer. If they adapt Are you sure? Yeah, if they I mean like I'm not an auteur who's so connected to their own works. But if like somebody, if I made a game and then somebody wanted to adapt the game into a movie and they changed it and they made it awful. I don't give a shit. It's awful. But if somebody takes my game and adapts it into a game, then I would have some words. But like, he's not a good, he can't make good movies. So don't, don't talk (laughs) shit, my man. (laughs) Your movies ain't good. Like we watched, because I think you weren't in any of the episodes for the miniseries, were you? No, I wasn't. That was pre-Shar, BC. Did you watch um, that hospital one that I can't remember? Kingdom Hospital? Yeah. No. That was also awful. Yeah. And like. I heard about it. It was legend on Good Enough to Air. (laughs) (laughs) Like even it, the original miniseries isn't good. (laughs) Like he just can't. He can't make a good movie or mini series at all. Like, <laughs> just let the Kubricks of the world adapt your movies and or adapt and your leave books it into to good the professionals. Movies. Yeah. So the fact that like this animosity built between Kubrick and King because one of them made a good movie and the other didn't, like, it's so baffling to me. Film is different. <laughs> the book has so many weird visuals that wouldn't translate well to film. Kubrick did us a service by fixing it. Wow. Hard takes. (laughs) Hard takes from Kelly over here. All right. So keep the idea of 19 million dollars in your mind. Yes. As to the cost of making this movie. Stanley Kubrick wanted to shoot the film in script order. This meant having all the relevant sets standing by at all times. In order to achieve this, every soundstage at Elstree Studios, which is where they filmed in London, was used with all the sets built, pre-lit, and ready to go during the entire shoot at the studios. So at all times, they had every every scene yeah. in this movie ready to be filmed so they could film it in order. Yeah. Wow. Like, That's I am un- almost unheard of. I, like, I imagine you have to pay a daily cost for every set that you have, like every studio that you have yeah. reserved. For sure. 
And then to like also have all of the props and all the lighting and stuff. It takes set so up. much time too. Like that's a huge thing because you're waiting for everything to be lit and it's not going to constantly be running because when the crew leaves, everything has to be shut off for like fire safety. Yeah. And then it all has to be reset. But they apparently had like all the lighting set up already. So man, that's, that's, that's expensive. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. Uh, my next fact is uh, during filming, Stanley Kubrick made the cast watch eraser head, which already is so mean. Pencil face eraser head. <gasps> <gasps> Only our patrons will understand that reference because it's a bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, Patreon.com slash drink and scream. Yes. Wink. Go support us. Uh, so he made the, the entire cast watch eraser head, Rosemary's baby and the exorcist to put them in the right frame of mind. So that gives you an idea of like what Kubrick was thinking while making this movie. Yep, for sure. I love directors that do that. That's a staple that needs to continue. Yeah, I think we talked about that during us. Like Jordan yeah. Peele did that a lot too. Eraserhead though makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. We should watch that. We've only covered Rosemary's Babies. Out of those Rosemary's three. Baby of those three. Yeah, I've never seen Eraserhead. I don't even know what that is. It's buck wild. <laughs> it's, um, I've been trying to think of a good don't movie. Don't tell me. Well, no, I've been trying to think of a good movie to introduce. Um, oh, no, you've seen Blue Velvet. Never mind. That's that's your introduction to that director. <laughs> uh, but we'll watch Twin Peaks eventually. My next point is in the book, Tony is actually the adult version of Danny speaking to him from the future and can be fully seen by Danny. Ah. So in the book, he's apparently just talking to his older uh, self. And Danny's full name is uh, Danny Anthony Torrance, which is where Tony comes from. Okay. And so this was actually interesting. While I was looking up the facts, they mentioned Dr. Sleep, which is the sequel to The Shining book. Yep. And in and the, it came out last year, the movie. Yeah. So in The Shining book, Danny's five. And apparently in the Dr. Sleep book, he's eight. But in the movie, he's like. He's Ewan McGregor. He's so. Ewan McGregor. <laughs> he's a full, full blown Jedi. <laughs> and so now I'm like even more interested to see what the movie is because apparently it takes so many liberties away from the book. Maybe well, it's a good movie. I was going to say, and that's, <laughs> you gotta just let them go apparently. So I, cause like apparently we watched the trailer for Dr. Sleep and there's a lot of shots of him like walking through the overlook again. Yep. Um, so I wonder if they're going to frame it in such a way that he is Tony talking to, uh, Oh, that would be cool. Danny, And maybe he says the things that Tony says in the original shining. Yep. Because when I was looking up just to see if Ewan McGregor actually does play Danny, because I was confused, um, the first review was that like Dr. Sleep, a, a love letter to the original Shining. So maybe they do a lot of fun, like callback things. Of, that would be interesting to see. I really want to see Dr. Sleep now. It's like 30, 40 years later. Yeah. Like, like it, from that f release of The Shining. Exactly. To Dr. Sleep. But wait, now I'm thinking because, okay, no. It must be in the movie because the one synopsis that I saw was that he is Danny is now he like helps dying people find peace before they die, which is why he's called like Dr. Sleep. OK, because uh, they're dying and helps them find peace. But I wonder if that's not even in the original Dr. Sleep novel. Maybe I'll read it. Maybe I'll pull a char and I'll read the novel <gasps> before I watch the movie. Ugh. Classic char. Wink. So this one is specifically for you, Char, because <gasps> you brought this up. Uh, Stephen King said that Kubrick's version of Wendy Torrance is one of the most misogynist characters he has ever seen put to film. He said she's just there to scream and be stupid. That's what I said. To which Duvall 
uh, Wendy's actress struck back and said, The Shining was a success. Stanley Kubrick took a second rate novel ding, ding, ding. and made a first rate <laughs> movie. It was a success. So that's that. I mean, she's the actress. She can say whatever she wants. <laughs> Kubrick then went on uh, to say publicly uh, with regards to King's take on Wendy that he never bought the fact that uh, she was strong, pretty and self-reliant in the book. Uh, that kind of character wouldn't stick around with a loser like Jack for so long. Kubrick thought there had to be something desperate, pathetic, and kind of codependent about her, something that the audience would have to instantly recognize for us to believe that she would stay with this abusive alcoholic who beats her kid. Uh, and this is what drove Kubrick to cast Duvall, who could sell it rather than a Meryl Streep or a Jane Fonda-like character. Oh my God, Meryl Streep in this movie. Young Meryl Streep as Wendy would be an entirely different character. I want to see that. I think that would be more <laughs> like the original book. But I kind of get where he's coming from, especially with like the the rewrites of Jack already being kind of uh, unwell yeah. in the beginning. And I think that there's like... That's a really hot take, saying that people who stay with their abuser aren't strong. This is true. What the hell? <laughs> there's strength. You can see that there's a lot of strength in Wendy's character in this portrayal as well. It's just different. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that, well, it's kind of, it was going to be my final thought, but it's interesting that in the book, she's specifically characterized to be so powerful and strong and driven. Yeah. Whereas watching the film, I kept pointing out, wow, she's so mousy. Wow. She's so quiet. Like, why is she flailing her arms? <laughs> like that to me was annoying. Yeah. The f arm flailing for sure. And the like utter weakness that she shows, but saying that she's weak because she stayed with a man who abuses her is not right. Yeah. That's fair. I understand that. Yeah. I just, I, I, I find it interesting again that adjustments were made for a visual medium and having a woman that appears more like submissive and codependent really like instantly f tells you like kind of what this relationship is like. Uh, but I do agree. Like it, again, it's the eighties. So their understanding of, of relationships was naive and terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is an interesting point of view that like we made this character more realistic in an abusive relationship. It seems like he try, was trying to make her more approachable even. Yeah, he was trying his dangdest that Kubrick. <laughs> um, this fact's for me. <gasps> the movie was actually scored by a trans woman. Nice! Uh, Wendy Carlos, uh, who also scored uh, Clockwork Orange. Fabulous! Uh, she actually scored Clockwork Orange while she was tr still transitioning, so she's actually credited with her uh, dead name okay. in a Clockwork Orange, but... Um, by the time that this movie came out, she'd already, uh, came out as a uh, trans woman. So she was credited as Wendy Carlos. Hell yeah. Congrats, Wendy. Yeah. I thought Another that was really Wendy. cool. Another Wendy. Wendy Torrance, Wendy <gasps> Carlos. He should have cast her as Wendy. <laughs> then all the characters would have matching names. Uh, this one's one of my, uh, favorite ones cause it's camera work. Uh, so the the scene of Jack, like chopping down the door. Yep. Uh, was actually personally panned by Stanley Kubrick. Not panned as in he didn't like it, but he panned the camera and it was on a tripod, mount, a mounted tripod, and Kubrick would move uh, the pan handle. He would synchronize it with each swing while keeping an eye on the monitor. Yep. And uh, another fun fact that I didn't include. Man, there's so many fun facts about this movie. Uh, Jack Nicholson actually used to volunteer as a fireman. Okay. Uh, so he had experience chopping down doors and the prop for the door was originally weak and fragile so that he, it would be easily breakable. But oh, he fucking God. ripped it to shreds. So they ended up making a real door for him to chop down. Cool. 
cool. Which then also translates into like that, the really like cool pacing of him like struggling a bit to break down the door. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Jack Nicholson also writes a lot. So during the scene where he's yelling at Wendy, uh, was very real to him because he felt he's felt that in the past and he's had that argument with his wife. Oh, of like being in the zone and then yeah. being distracted. Yeah. Like he regrets being that angry, but he also like substituted those arguments, even to the point where like the line of him being like, even if you don't hear me typing, if I'm in here, I'm working, which is something that he's brought up before. That's uh, cool. Yeah. Which is interesting. This one's for us. This movie was released two weeks after Friday the 13th, the original. Ah, maybe that's why it didn't get as great of an opening weekend. Because Friday the 13th was uh, happening and so big. And it was a summer slasher sexy flick. And this one's a mind fuck. Yeah. So on to <laughs> my personal favorite trivia facts of any movie. <gasps> Something about a gun. Wait, there weren't any guns. The car. Yeah. So Jack's car is a 1973 Volkswagen sedan Beetle. It's pretty cool. Um, Yellow punch buggy, no punchbacks. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't it red? No. Okay. The two tracked vehicles, which I assume is the like treads. Yeah, the snow cars. In the movie are the active fissure VW powered four speed snow track referred to and labeled on the vehicle as the snowcat and a theocal imp snowcat. This is the vehicle where Wendy and uh, in which Wendy and Danny escape in. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's it. But yeah, like you said, there were no guns in this movie. There was a fact about the axe, I think. What type of axe that was. But I, I think I forgot to add it. <laughs> that was good. Nice, nice uh, scaredy facts, my love. Thank you. I feel like I might have to cut some of those because they were very long. <laughs> but I like talking about this movie. Something about this. This is my final thought, by the way. I'm easily transitioning into it. Something about this movie feels so talk talk about a bull that's right that's my new phrase <laughs> but like i don't know if it's because it's a classic or because there is so much depth to it but there's something about this movie that always like sparks my creative thought process and just wanting to like analyze it and talk about it and like talk about the creative process yeah which is uh i don't know it's really good and i could get like i've i don't want to be like one of those smell my own fart reviewers where i'm like oh the artistic integrity of this frame was Mm, a masterpiece. You could cut this and make a Renaissance painting. Aww. But it is just like a. there's so much work that was put into this movie that there's so much you could analyze about the process of making movies in general, yeah. I guess. Yeah, that's it. That's my final thought. It's a good talking piece. Good, which is interesting that you didn't want to actually give too many points of your own thoughts because you feel pressure. Yeah. And yet your final thought is that you love to do that. I specifically didn't want my thoughts to be like in this scene, they use uh, the rule of thirds and they yeah. flip the frame. Like I could have <laughs> talked about a lot of stuff that was like flipping the 180 and stuff like that. But I wanted to talk more about our experience with the movie, I guess, and the yeah. interesting um, creative process into making the movie, I guess. <laughs> Analyzing things through a queer and feminist lens. I do have to update everyone that this drink is very buddy approved. Even he though cats been, aren't supposed to drink cream. No, but they love it. And <laughs> Buddy is sniffing my glass. Uh, my final thought, I kind of already brought it up, but it's that I haven't read The Shining and I really want to because mainly I want to see the difference of Wendy in the book compared to the film. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that. So I'm, interesting, I'm interested to see how they compare. Mm. So maybe I will do that in this quarantine time. I've often heard... The differences being the movie is very chaotic and nihilist 
And the book is very romantic and pessimist. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I'm glad that it's basically been like a month into our own quarantine. And it was like a month into the family's quarantine in The Shining when shit started to go down. And I do not want to bite your head off. That's fair. I mean, I have been talking to the invisible bartender a lot more recently, um, but he seems cool. He's not charging me. Wow. Yeah. Your money's no good here. Damn it. There's another fact. When, damn it, <laughs> when Jack first gets to the bar, he tells Lloyd, I would sell my soul for a drink. Then he doesn't have any cash. Then the next time Lloyd tells him that his, his tab is covered because Jack did actually sell his soul for a drink. Ah. He's paid for it with his soul. I'd, it's that's it. <laughs> ah. Um, I would sell my soul and this podcast. Well, that's been The Shining, a movie about social distancing again. God damn it! How do we keep doing this? I swear to God, I planned this list forever ago <laughs> before the quarantine. <laughs> Next week, we'll be watching one of Kelly's fave horror movie guilty pleasures, The Conjuring. Yay! From 2013. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to our basics. Woo! And remember. Always scream responsibly. Ah! Bye!